Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show, giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR. 8.55am, 3CR Digital Radio and 3cr.org.au. My name is Marnie and from the Brainwaves team today we have Alana and Rebecca. Joining us today is Melanie Scott from the charity Dogs for PTSD and her assistance dog Paddington. We will be discussing the benefits of animal companionship But today we'll also be discussing PTSD, so if you require support, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome, and to start the interview, we have Rebecca with a question. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, It's it's been amazing, and Paddington is absolutely adorable. Um, So before we get on to... Uh, your work with therapy dogs. Could you tell us a little bit about PTSD and its causes and symptoms? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me, guys. So my name is Melanie Scott and I run Melanie Scott Canine Training and Canines for Valor is my charity, um, of which Paddington is our, our star. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD can arise after a traumatic event. So this can be any sort of event, so car accidents or natural disasters, childhood abuse, um, violent assaults, anything where you feel that your life is threatened. Um, and we could also all be in the same situation and we all react in a different way. So just because um, we're all exposed to the same traumatic event doesn't mean that we all respond the same way. Um, symptoms include things like reliving the event, so you're constantly thinking about the event, uh, yet um, memory loss, um, depression and anxiety can stem after that, uh, nightmares, flashbacks, hypervigilance, so looking around all the time, um, you're always on edge, um, anger outbursts. Um, because you're so frustrated and scared you don't know what's going on and social withdrawal ends up happening as well so you tend to pull away from people Um, so yeah so it can be it can be treated but you just need to know the early warning signs and that's like one of the keys is about trying to raise awareness about what to look for and to get help. Um, Could you just tell us a little bit about your past as a police officer and how you first developed um, PTSD. Was there a particular event that caused your PTSD, um, if you're comfortable with discussing? Um, Yeah, sure. So I developed post-traumatic stress disorder after probably about four months on the job. Um, And I didn't know what PTSD was. I didn't know what to look for, what the signs and symptoms were. Um, So it all came as a bit of a shock to me, but 
Um, yeah, in a nutshell, I had a confrontation in an alleyway with a severely um, drug-dependent individual who was trying to shoot up heroin, um, and I couldn't allow him to do that, and I didn't have the support of the other officers there, and I was pretty close to having to beg for my life. Um, and I came home from work and I went to bed and I thought, wow, that, you know, as soon as I was in that alleyway, I thought, man, this could be the end for me. And, um, yeah, it just sort of then I like went to sleep. I couldn't sleep properly that night. I woke up sort of like in a fog. It was like I went to bed as one person and then woke up as another, um, and then I just kept working, didn't realise there was a problem, didn't know who to talk to, what to talk to, you know, who, what was even going on, how to even explain it to anyone. Um, and then a couple of months later, you keep on having more incidents. And then, um, yeah, then I, we had uh, the Safe City cameras were in the city at that time. Um, and there was some hidden cameras there. And then during one of my late shifts, we uh, witnessed an unconscious woman getting sexually assaulted in an alleyway. Um, and that was probably the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, and being unable to help her or know where she was and have it happening in lifetime was, is something that um, pretty much plays on my mind every single day and has for the last 17 years. So, um, yeah, and now anything that triggers a feeling of abandonment um, because they didn't have support um, and unable to help someone, um, it sort of pretty much has uh, a, a severe reaction. So that, that is what would trigger that. So an emotion can actually trigger um, a flashback or uh, an anger outburst and stuff like that. So yeah, so it was pretty intense, um, and yeah, I continued working after that, and then um, went on leave, and I just couldn't put my uniform back on after that. Um, the sense of like shame, guilt, I felt like I'd let um, this person down, couldn't do anything, and I pretty much have struggled to look people in the eye ever since, because I feel such a sense of um, guilt, I think. Mm -hmm. So yeah. It's pretty intense. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for sharing that. It's really brave of you to come on here and especially talk about your own personal experience and we're very thankful for that. Um, so how common is PTSD among, among current and former emergency services personnel? Um, it's quite common because you're repeatedly exposed to traumatic events so that increases the likelihood that you will develop post-traumatic stress. Um, so rather than just witnessing one traumatic thing or being to one um, event, you can experience multiple ones over and over again. Um, and that can build up over time. So for some people, uh, it can be one event that can trigger the post-traumatic stress. Other people, it's cumulative. Um, sometimes you can experience an event and then not think anything much more of it. Then 10 years down the track, there'll be another incident and then that will bring the first one back to you and it can be very confusing and frightening. So statistically, I think there's roughly one in 10 
serving members have got post-traumatic stress. Um, we're fairly unclear on the ones that are no longer serving because of the lack of research and stuff. And currently, um, according to the ABS, there's like one emergency service worker every six weeks commits suicide. And oh. a lot of those are attributed to post-traumatic stress and other causes. But um, yeah, mental illness is quite high in the in the causes of that. Um, could you just tell us the difference between service dogs, therapy dogs, and companion dogs? Okay, so service dogs have got full public access rights and they have passed or are trying to pass their public access test, which is un- uh, undertaken by a independent assessor. Um, you t- in order to have a service dog, you must have a diagnosed medical condition by a doctor um, and that dog must be trained in at least three uh, ways to alleviate your medical condition. Um, they've also got to have high levels of obedience, um, be of good temperament, toilet train, uh, good health, um, and that sort of thing. So therapy dogs don't have full public access rights, but they can go to places like uh, nursing homes and hospitals and schools and that sort of thing if they've got permission from that school and they're toilet trained and they're well behaved and they're more of like a, a communal animal. So they can like get pats and cuddles off everyone and um, the service dog is more, um, that service dog is for your needs. So um, that dog is more like um, individualized for you and the therapy dog is basically um, like goes in there and can cuddle anyone. Um, So you can't take your therapy dog um, out into like a shopping center because it doesn't have public access rights. Whereas service dog has public access rights under the Disability Discrimination Act 1992. So um, you've got that coverage there um, and the companion dog is more just like a normal pet dog so um, you've got um, companion level um, obedience trials and stuff like that but yeah companion dog is more just like a collective term for you know just your general everyday um, cuddly pet at home yeah so have you personally found um, therapy dogs and service dogs beneficial uh, yeah I've definitely um, experienced the a difference in my behavior in that since I've gotten Paddington um, yeah so he does like anger interruption techniques um, so he will guide me away from a confrontational situation um, having been in the police force they train you to go towards the danger um, and you find that in military settings and that as well so when everyone else is running out you're running in and that doesn't seem to go away when you leave your job so when there's uh, a confrontation, you want to go in there and stop it. Paddington prevents me from going in there and doing that by pulling me away from the from the situation, and I've continued to train that into him because that is beneficial for me. Um, he's also he puts his paw on my hand if I'm about to lose my temper on the phone. Um, he intervenes if you're having a flashback, so he can come and jump up on you to bring you back to reality when you're having a flashback um and just getting me out of the house um we actually went to the movies for the first time i went to the movies for the first time by myself with paddington about a month ago so i hadn't been to the movies by myself in 17 years 
So that um, was a huge, a huge thing. Um, and it probably took me three days to build the courage up to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when we did it, you know, it felt really good. And we go out and we see friends for coffee and I would never do that before. And I would never be talking to you guys on the radio if Paddington wasn't around. So yeah, he's made a definitely a, a huge difference. And he's an absolutely beautiful dog. <laughs> he's currently sitting under us and he is, he's so calm, so quiet. He's so it's so cute. nice. <laughs> Um, yeah, I know how much my dogs do for me, even when I'm upset, they come over and they give me a little cuddle, it just makes my day, absolutely. Um, how did you first get involved in the training of dogs through the canine charity? Um, I started the Canines for Valor charity just to try and get more awareness about post-traumatic stress for um, police officers and other first responders. We just, there's not enough support out there, I never felt the support. Um, and you always fall through the cracks. So I decided that I wanted a PTSD dog after seeing one on television. I waited for like 10 years and couldn't seem to find one anywhere. Um, so I decided to start my own charity to do that and also my own business to try and help that along. Um, yeah, so I decided to do it just because there wasn't anything available at that time so yeah we started back in 2015. So how does the support of a therapy or service dog differ from their emotional support that people can get from their regular pet? Uh, I think it's mainly that um, the they've got a specific skill set so um, the therapy dogs I like to train them up so then they've got like a similar skill set to the service dogs, but they just don't have public access. So you can train any dog um, that has that bond with you to do the same sort of things as um, a service dog can do. But if your dog's too, like it doesn't like other dogs, it's too aggressive or that sort of thing, it doesn't mean that your dog can't perform these sort of tasks. You just don't take it to the shops, you know. But it means that it can still wake up from nightmares. It can still... Um, be trained to interrupt anxiety attacks and crying episodes and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so it's more that they're just uh, trained um, to respond to you okay. better. Yeah, so your dog won't know when you're upset, like you were saying before, and then you yeah. can just reinforce that behaviour, and then that dog will then start, start automatically doing it for you. So, yeah, a lot of dogs already know when you're upset. Mm. Yeah, so. that's interesting. Um, could you just tell us a little bit more about the actual training process? Um, can all dogs be successfully trained in this way or is it only a select few who might make um, this criteria? Um, no, it's not that many that can pass all the way through training. So probably only about 40% of dogs that start finish. Um, that's just because it's really strict um, in the assessment. So the dog, initially you have to have like a sort of calm temperament um, one that usually you want something that resp- a dog that responds to food and um, games so then you can um, teach them like to fetch items for you and that sort of thing if they're interested in fetch food motivation is good um, yeah they they're not protective of you um, mm. so you don't want a dog that's uh, will, will guard you mm. um, and just yeah one that's generally gets along with people um, other dogs, it's not too timid um, and it's quite easy going. 
Um, and you've got to expose the dog to a lot of different situations. So these dogs are exposed to highly stressful situations like shopping centres and um, trains and trams and um, places that dogs don't normally go. And um, you need to continually take them into these environments step by step to just get them used to this sort of to get them used to that sort of thing so you have to take them to different places meet different people um objects animals all sorts of things um you also train them with obedience and you work up to um trying to pass the public access test so there's things like um being able to get them in and out of the car safely um, they've got to wait until you open the door, then you've got to command them in, they hop into the footwell um, when commanded. Uh, same sort of thing when you're getting them out of the vehicle. Um, there's like off, you know, there's all sorts of um, assessment criteria that you work towards, plus you also have to have your um, three specific um, skills that your dog can do um, on top of that to, in, order to pass the pat, um, in order to pass the PAT test. Is it a lengthy process? Uh, yeah, it can take anywhere up to two years, depending on the dog and depending on the level of training. But it can take um, at least an hour a day, at least. So, um, yeah, most of the time it's um, a very involved process, a lengthy process. Um, it's really worth it in the end, um, but it can be extremely disappointing when the dog um, can't make it through at the end. But mm -hmm. You know, it's a highly stressful environment for them. Yeah, it's like they did so good. It's yeah. just not enough. Um, so how can people go about giving their companion or therapy dogs a higher level of training? Uh, there's a lot of dog obedience schools out there that you can get basic obedience and that sort of thing can help you bond with your dog, which is really important because with these sort of dogs, you need to have that bond. So you really want to be spending more time with them. And the better behaved you are, with the you know, better behaved the dog is, the more places you can take it. So you can take it down to the shops for coffee um, when you couldn't before. So you're spending more time with the dog. So, mm. um, yeah, and my training school, Melanie Scott Canine Training, also offers um, higher level obedience training. So if your dog's suitable, then we can train it on if you're a first responder. Otherwise, I can do it on private consults. I can come out to your house and we can work through... It depends on the dog's temperament, um, your ability to train the dog and your willingness to train. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's mainly about motivation, I think, um, and the bond between you and your dog. Yeah. Um, do you think there's enough support for ex-emergency services personnel um, with PTSD? Um, I would say not at this stage. We're heading in the right direction, um, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, I sort of gauge it more on um, like what actions are actually being taken. Right? Like we've got all these programs, we're still trying to implement them. Um, but I don't think I'll be happy until we've got like a, a significant drop, if not zero, suicide rate. Um, because yeah, it's got. It's not just uh, the first responders; it's their families as well that suffer. And I don't. I definitely know that there's not enough support for the families. Um, we're starting to get more support now, but we've still got a long way to go. We're on the right track, but um, we've still got a long way to go. So is the problem recognised or is it kind of pushed under the rug? And what do you think could be done more to raise awareness? Um, I think talking about it, so shows like this are really good um, to... Like to 
to tell people that it's out there that you can get this by being uh, a first responder um, and in the general community like there's a lot of people out there that have got PTSD that don't know they've got PTSD um, and as a result you use like self coping mechanisms so it's not just PTSD itself like a lot of drug addiction alcohol addiction gambling um, can stem from an inability to cope from something that's happened in their lives so um, yeah so I think we can get on top of things by talking about it more and continuing to raise awareness um, you can support charities that are um, raising awareness of post-traumatic stress there's quite a few charities out there so it's not just our canons for valor one there are a lot of other um, charities that have started up um, to raise awareness about post-traumatic stress um, and also just basic things like sharing things on social media um, and just getting just keeping the conversation um, keeping the conversation out there and listening to people when they reach out for help um, so I think that's really important so if someone says that they've got post-traumatic stress to like guide them in the right direction to get help to get counseling and you know um, they don't have to suffer alone um, awareness of therapy dogs seems to be growing uh, is it is the use of therapy dogs also becoming more common uh, yeah it is um, I think they're becoming more recognized um, in a lot of different ways so uh, dogs are getting used more in schools to help kids to read um, there's been uh, a lot of stuff where there's pictures on social media about kids reading to shelter dogs to try and help boost both the dog and the kids um, self-esteem and encourage interaction um, and there's also um, a lot of benefit just having therapy dogs visiting into nursing homes um, we visit a psychiatric facility um, there's a lot of benefit um, that comes out because just like being around dogs and patting dogs and that sort of thing can raise your level of um, oxytocin which is like bonding so mm -hmm. you often don't have that level of trust anymore when you've got post-traumatic stress it erodes your trust and having the dog there kind of help helps re-establish trust so just having the dog there can calm you yeah um, do you have any um, stories about um, when you were feeling in a certain way and Paddington's come running over to help you out I um, <laughs> I had a phone call from work cover and I was quite um, I'd been fighting this case for quite a while and as soon as I answered the phone he came running over to me I just sighed and um, yeah he came running over to me and gave me this distressed look on his face and put his oh. paw on my hand and I um yeah I, it yeah definitely it it calmed me and I didn't want to seem um he looked upset and <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah but he's um and he's definitely he's pulled me away from any situation that could be potentially confrontational so you don't get into arguments um yeah it's it's definitely helped a lot and yeah I haven't ever really ventured out that much to catch up with people in public places and that and yeah it's definitely definitely just the social aspect and people it changes the whole conversation about post-traumatic stress before it was always about what happened to you and you know what was wrong with you and you know you were weak or you just couldn't handle it and having Paddington makes it really it changes the conversation mm. around post-traumatic stress is more about oh what can he do for you um you know that sort of thing like it's not directed at me in a negative way it's 
changed the conversation from post-traumatic stress being a bad thing to being something that can be worked on and not something that's completely negative. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a massive change in my life. Mm. So just lastly, to kind of finish off. So although your own training focuses on helping emergency services personnel, what other applications are there for the use of therapy dogs and where can people go if they want to find out more information? Okay, so there's a huge range of different medical conditions that um, dogs can be trained to help. Um, they can be trained to help people with hearing um, hearing loss, um, dementia, um, psychiatric disorders, autism spectrum, um, just the the elderly in general, um, especially if they're having like a lot of falls and that sort of thing. So you can have dogs there to sort of help stabilise them, to help get them out of chairs, and um, especially with their dementia patients. So they've got a dog with them they're less likely you know you can train the dog to come home and often they can and the people can wander off and they don't know where they are um you can also use therapy dogs in in situations where if they're scared to go to the dentist some dentist surgeries have actually implemented that um some doctors have some psychology officers have got um dogs that come in to calm um children there's also been evidence overseas of um children that have been uh, witness to violent crimes that the dogs are actually present in the courtroom while they're giving evidence so there's a huge huge range if you want to get help on uh, training these dogs there's a lot of different organizations that do it um, there's a lot of private trainers that do it I personally do it um, and you'll find now that things are becoming more common the waiting list is getting longer so um, apply to different places so multiple places inquire ask around and you know you do at the end of the day get what you pay for so just because someone is um cheap doesn't mean that you can get the result but you just try it if you try them and you don't like them you can go somewhere else you know like it's you know you don't need to be afraid you just got to give it a go you know Mm. so my advice is just do your research have a go if you don't like it you can change or you can stop or whatever but just you know get out there and have a go Thank you to Melanie and Paddington for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. You can find more of our shows on our website, brainwaves.org.au or on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au or on iTunes. Feel free to send us feedback or ideas for shows via email at brainwaves at wellways.org. Next week on the show, we will be reviewing mindful meditation apps. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.